This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Ya bani israel adhkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wa awfu bi'ahdi awfi bi'ahdikum wa iyaya farhabun wa aminu bima anzaltu musaddiqan lima ma'akum wa la takunu awwala kafirin bih wa la tashtaru bi'ayati thamanan qalila wa iyaya fattakun رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي فالحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين ثم اما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته um, after the introductory comments that i wanted to share with you yesterday we get into the passage of the israelites the longest section of the surah from ayah number 40 all the way through to ayah number 121 is this continuous subject of um, snippets from the history of the israelites بنو اسرائيل the first thing I wanted to share with you about the phrase Ya Bani Israel, children of Israel directly, Allah addressing them directly, is actually a matter of uh, a point to note. We as uh, Muslims have to understand that Allah has left certain sunnah, certain sunnah, and certain legacies in the Quran. And one of those legacies is to talk to the people of the book directly. And by Allah talking to the Israelites directly in the Quran, Ya Bani Israel, He didn't say Qul Ya Bani Israel, or, you know, the Israelites have to make mention of the favor as if Allah is talking about them in the third person. He's talking directly to them. What that does for the Muslim community is for so long as we believe in this Quran, we also believe in open dialogue and open conversation with the people of the book, both the Jewish and the Christian communities. And that's something that's kind of a something passed down to us, something we can't ignore. We tend to become very isolated communities. Unfortunately, in a place like the United States where there's so many different cultures, religions, so many different ethnicities uh, uh, you know, that are mixing together, unfortunately, one of the most isolated institutions you find is the masjid. It's a very, the, the, a tip, the typical story of many, many masajids across the, world, across the country is that even their neighbors don't know who they are until Friday when we park on their lawn. Like Otherwise, they have no idea who we are. You know, and there are, you know, there are even stories of people who weren't Muslim who were next door to the masjid for 15, 20 years, walked past the masjid every day to go to church for Bible study, you know, and they just, they had no idea that was a masjid. That's a tragedy because we're supposed to be the people, I'm not saying you proselytize or try to convert people, but at the very least we are to engage them in conversation as Allah Azza wa Jal Himself engaged them in conversation. So that's something we learn directly from Yabani Israel. The second thing I wanted to note here is the term Israel. The term Israel, like I told you yesterday, language over time, you know, influences change, people's thought process changes. So the idea of the word Israel, right, today is, it means a political state with which Muslims have grievances, which is, you know, you know attributed, a lot of, hum, you know, human rights violations are attributed to them and all of that. But in the Quran study sense, when you hear the word Israel, it's not supposed to conjure up images of anger. It's actually a noble word. It's, a, it's the name of a prophet. And it's a noble a name of a great prophet. As a matter of fact, Israel, his other name I keep mentioning to you, Yaqub alayhi salam, is mentioned several times in the Quran, predominantly in the context of being a role model father. 
So his role as a father is highlighted over and over again in the Qur'an, especially in this surah, and again in Surah Yusuf. Once again in Surah Yusuf. That, so this is something that we have to internalize. The, ma- the vast majority of the prophets mentioned in the Qur'an are Israelite prophets. These people were chosen by Allah, they were blessed by Allah. They were the Ummah of Islam. They were actually the Ummah of Islam. And we have a lot more in common with them than you might realize. As a matter of fact, up until almost... You know, a, a good point within the seerah up until the revelation of Ramadan and the change of the Qibla, we were, we were fasting on the same days as they do. We were praying in the same direction as they do. We were mentioning the same, as a, as a matter of fact, we were celebrating Ashura, which was actually their celebration. And Rasulullah said, we, are, we have more right to celebrate Musa salam than they do. And we celebrated it. So the commonalities are very, very powerful. Because the source is the same. Allah is the one who revealed Torah, Allah is the one who revealed the Qur'an. And Musa alayhi salam, important, very important to understand, Musa alayhi salam is the closest messenger to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in mission. The parallels between Musa alayhi salam and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam are the most parallels. That's why he's the most mentioned messenger. Can you imagine by comparison, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is mentioned by name only four times, and once the fifth time is Ahmad. Four times as Muhammad and the fifth time as Ahmad. Over 70 times with Musa alayhi salam. Why? You know, even when things got hard on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi salam, مَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لِتَشْقَى We didn't send the Qur'an, or, you know, reveal the Qur'an onto you, send it down to you so you could become miserable. We didn't send it to make your life difficult. And just to cheer you up and to remind you that revelation is a blessing, وَهَلْ أَتَاكَ حَدِيثُ مُوسَى did you, you remember the story of Musa, the event of Musa, when Musa received revelation? So the, the, the Rasul ﷺ receiving Qur'an, and how it's supposed to bring him joy, how is Allah bringing him joy? By reminding him of how Musa ﷺ received Torah. Right? So the parallel and the, the connection in the Qur'an is a very, very powerful connection. And this is something that has to be very clear in the minds of the Muslims, that these are in fact, you know, uh, they're a noble people that Allah had given a lot of favor to. Now, as for the matter of them being a cursed people, Allah Azza Allah doesn't describe the children of Israel as cursed. He doesn't. He describes those who disbelieved among them as cursed. There's a huge difference between those two things. You know, they're not a lineage or a genealogy or a, you know, a genetic heritage is not cursed. It's those who committed a certain act from within them that is cursed. This takes me back to the Fatiha. Very important to understand. By the end of the Fatiha, we recite غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين Right? And المغضوب عليهم means not those who earned rage and الضالين nor those that are lost. Right? So those who receive rage nor those that are lost. And Rasulullah in describing what this means, he said اليهود والنصارى The Jews and the Christians. So the, the Jews are the ones who received rage, became worthy of Allah's anger and other anger, and the Christians are the people that are lost. This is the commentary of the Qur'an, and then on top of that, the commentary of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But the question arises, how come Allah just didn't say, غَيْلِ الْيَهُودِ وَلَا النَّصَارَى You know, صِرَاتَ الَّذِينَا لَعَمْتَ عَلَيْهِمْ غَيْلِ الْيَهُودِ وَلَا النَّصَارَى Ameen. He didn't. He said, غَيْلِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا الضَّالِينَ So why is that important? Because the Prophet ﷺ had to explain it, right? What the Rasul of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is explaining is that when you want to understand people who become, who Allah gets angry with, Study the behavior of certain children of Israel as recorded in the Qur'an and you will learn why Allah got angry with them. Allah, the Messenger is not making a comment about all Jews, nor is He making a comment about all Christians. If you want to understand, there are some among the people of the book who are completely lost. 
study what Allah criticizes of a group of them from the book. And you'll understand why they got lost. So this is actually pointing to us the examples, the case studies of the Qur'an. We're supposed to learn lessons from history, not point fingers as a result of history. So that's the second point I wanted to bring to your attention. Now here, udhkuru ni'mati, make mention of my favor. The favor of the Israelites that Allah gave to the Israelites is something that's been carrying on for a very, very, very long time. From the time of Ishaq, from Ibrahim salam to Yaqub, then his children, and then you know Allah favored them by allowing them to settle in Egypt with Yusuf salam, and He gave them the favor of all of them, got to make tawbah, and those 12 sons of Yaqub salam, then became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were very well settled in the land, and then of course the political situation in Egypt changed, the kingdom was turned over, the pharaohs took over, and when they took over, the same people that had elite positions under the previous regime are now, we have to bring them down, you know, so the Israelites became a, a, a damned people, they were enslaved, they were tortured, they were beat, and Allah even, another favor He opened for them is that He allowed them an impossible means of escape with Musa salam. they crossed the water. So there's a lot of favor, and then of course when they cross the water, they're in the desert, they're supposed to dehydrate and starve to death with hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children in the middle of the desert, but you know, we gave, continuously gave you shade with clouds. And we sent down upon you man and salwa, which I'll explain when we get to the ayat. There's lots of favor that Allah keeps doing on these people, not to mention what I mentioned yesterday about the prophets that kept getting sent to them. But you wouldn't learn any of that if you didn't study what? History. The key word here is history. To understand the favor of Allah upon a people, that people, those people must understand their history. This actually is another, yet another legacy of the Qur'an in order to be a serious student of the Book of Allah and to appreciate the guidance and the gift that Allah has given to you and to me, we have to study our history. It becomes incumbent upon every believer to study their history. By the way, when somebody is called not by their name, when they're not called by their name, when they're called by their father's name, when, they're, when, that's ha- when that happens, they're called by their father's name, and then they're, said, they're told, you know, son of so-and-so, you should remember. Why would you do that? Why, why not just call them by their name? When you, if you call them by their, their father's name, then you're saying, you know, don't you remember your father was a noble man? He wouldn't have, would he be proud of you if you behaved like this? Are you serious? You're his son and you're acting like this? So when you call someone by their father's name, then you're actually invoking the honor of the father and how disappointing you are to that father before you are to anybody else. So when the Israelites are called upon and told, the the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, children of Israel, make mention of the favor. It's as though Allah is saying, I had one of the most thankful, grateful servants of mine, Israel, Yaqub, who was so grateful to me, you're his children, you're supposed to keep up with your father's legacy, you're supposed to be grateful. So, but they wouldn't actually acknowledge that unless they were students of history and they understood their, their lineage. This is very important for identity purposes. These people, they have a very, one piece of their identity is their religion, which, which by the way, knows no genealogy. Somebody could be Buddhist for 30 generations and they become Muslim, they're equally Muslim as we are. But then there is such a thing as the, the, the history of our faith. And that's something Allah gave a special favor to this ummah that He didn't even give to the Israelites. To the Israelites, Ya Bani Israel has to be said. Why? Because the only thing that connects them to their past is their actual you know, uh, fatherly heritage. For us, Ya Ayyuhal Ladina Amanu is enough. 
Because among us are Turks, among us are Africans, among us are the Chinese, among us are the Asians, among us are the, you know, the Europeans. Among us is every color under the sun of humanity. And we're still bonded as, as closely to this deen and to our history, to our Torah, not by a father, but rather by this faith. That's enough. And actually, we do have a common father, and that's Ibrahim alayhi salam. He's our father in faith. You know, millata abikum Ibrahim. That's good enough for us, right? So that's an added favor Allah gave. That's why you'll find Ya Bani Israel, Ya Bani Israel three times in this surah. And then when the switch happens, it's not Ya Bani Ismail. <laughs> you know, because bil muqabil, you were supposed to say children of Israel, as opposed to that children of Ismail. No, he doesn't say that. He said, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. Because he made it far wider open. He opened it up, you know, uh, uh, far more. So anyway, that the point I wanted to make briefly is the importance of our own study of history. It's absolutely critical that we are our, our our understanding of who we are and how deeply rooted we are and how profound it is the Islam that we carry. You cannot appreciate until you study history. I can't help myself, but at least make one comment about history. Even understanding contemporary history, I'm not just talking about the history of the prophets or Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or the Sahaba radiallahu anhu ajma'in, or the 3rd century, or the 4th century, or the 5th century, all of that is critical. And I think at least we, have to, we should have some education in history. But it's as important to understand at least the last 100 years, at least the last 200 years, at least the last 300 years. How do we get to where we are? There's a, there, a lot happened between Umar radiallahu anhu and 2016. <laughs> so you can't just know that and then say, hey, here we are. Uh, we are the way we are and our thinking is the way it is and we're suffering from some of the things that we're suffering from for a reason. Something has been afflicting us, a disease has been afflicting this ummah over time, weakening the body. Just like a body gets weakened by a disease, this ummah has been suffering from a disease for some time and that disease has grown and grown and grown and we've become weaker and weaker and weaker as a people. If you don't look back to where the sickness started, how it began, what, what its symptoms are, we're not going to be able to fix the problem. Part of our identity, very important, is to understand, you know, even recent history. You know, just think about this. Like, you know, Algerian Muslims, Pakistani Muslims, Indian Muslims, you know, uh, Malay Muslims, or, you know, especially the Muslims in the, in the uh, you know, North Africa or the Muslims in Southeast Asia who were colonized people. We were colonized by European forces, right? So either the French colonized many parts of the Muslim world or the British colonized many parts of the Muslim world, right? And they, they changed our education systems. They removed languages from our curricula. Our, like Indian scholars, for example, used to write as fluently in Arabic as they did in Farsi, as they did in Urdu. Like they, they were trilingual and they were, their language among them was Arabic. Arabic was almost systematically erased from Southeast Asia. You know, it was removed from our curricula. The Islamic calendar was you know, dissolved, you know. We are, are uh, the culture was so transformed that people who speak the languages of the Muslims, starting with Arabic, and all the daughters of Arabic, all the languages that are inspired by Arabic or heavily influenced by Arabic. Look at how Turkish is influenced by Arabic. Look at how Urdu and Farsi are even. Farsi is an ancient language, still so influenced by Arabic because of Islam. And all of those languages of the Muslims, and in which there is wealth upon wealth upon wealth of scholarly tradition of Islam, those languages became backwards languages, but if you want to get ahead in life, and you want to get a real job, or you want to get a real degree, then you better know English and French and German, and on top of that is of course English. And they did such a number on us, that today, when you travel to the Muslim world, the, the place where our pride in Islam comes from is the Ummah, the land of the Muslims. 
when you go there and you go even to an Arab country and you speak in Arabic, uh, but you speak in English, oh, there's a difference in mentality. You go, you're dressed. Though if you're dressed like the locals dress, you're dressed in a thobe, shalwar kameez, you're wearing a lungi or something, eh, you're wearing a suit. Oh. Somehow we, we were, meant, were mentally colonized. They left. The British are gone, man. They're gone. But they, they, they left a number on us, right? And we, our psyche, our mentality has shifted. Something has happened. And that affects the way Islam is carried to the next generation too. Studying that history and understanding it, and, that's, and the more you study it, wallahi, the stronger sense of an identity you have. Who are you as a people? Who are we as a people? It affects not just us as nations and as a body politic, it affects you as a person inside of your family. It affects you down to your family. I mean, just think about this. Now we have Muslim families that are Muslim, alhamdulillah, they're not they're even fasting in Ramadan and stuff. But one of their young men in the family decides he's going to grow a beard this Ramadan. Oh my God, the, the eruption that's happening inside that family. This kid has gone crazy. He's becoming extremist. They're going to arrest you. They're going to throw you in jail. What are you doing? You know, this is not what we do in our family. You don't have to become so extreme to be Muslim. What would your father think? What is your uncle going to say? How are we ever going to get you married looking like a goat like that? They're going to, like they're, you're going to hear it. But if you just go like two generations ago, three generations ago, and pull out a picture of grandpa, what are you going to see? You're going to see a beard. <laughs> you're like, uh, if you're saying that the family is going to be upset, uh, you should be more worried that grandpa would have been a lot more upset. You know? You're, you've forgotten our own history. There are lots of places in the Muslim world today, they don't realize that in the last 70, 80, 90 years, our grandfathers and their peers paid for Islam with their, with their blood. Like we wouldn't have had the masajid and you can just hear the adhan. You wouldn't have had that if they weren't making qiyamul layl all night, begging Allah, Ya Allah, free us from the oppression so we can worship only you. And they were like night after night after night, they were fasting and they were, they were, they were sacrificing their, their risk. They were making all kinds of hijrah to be able to just say Allah's name. Just to be, and one day our children will say La ilaha illallah. And that same deen is now such a, such a burden. Like, you know, then you, the irony of it, those same children of that ancestry, then their parents bring them to America for a better life. And they say, you should learn something about your religion. And they put them in a Sunday school. And this kid is like, oh, I have to go to Sunday school to learn Islam? God. Just compare this kid and his attitude towards Islam to what his great grandfathers paid for and how they paid for it. Just to, how the disconnect is amazing. That's what happens when you don't know what? Your history. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know what you have. That's what Allah does to the Israelites. If you're so proud of your ancestry, then know something about it. Udhkuru ni'mati. Make mention of my favor. Allati an'amtu alaykum. That I showered upon you. By the way, this word is not an accident. This word is actually directly related to what you just read in the Fatiha. Sirat al-ladhina an'amta alayhim. Udhkuru ni'mati allati. There's a direct connection that's being made here. Show us the path of those that you showered favor upon. They were people who Allah showered favor upon. And Allah says, look, I chose you. Make mention of that great favor that allowed you to walk on that straight path. Some have raised the question like Imam Razi, 
that when the Jews were favored, when the Jewish people were given so much favor in the past, it seems as though it only increased them in misguidance. It didn't make them better, it kept on making them worse. So can you really call that a blessing? Because I mean, if it was a blessing, it would have made them better people, but as a, as a matter of fact, it made them, they started deteriorating more and more and more. And he even cites the ayah, you know, the, those who disbelieve shouldn't dare assume that we extend means for them, we give them further extension, more leeway, because it's better for them. Actually, we only give them more leeway so they can earn more sins, and they have painful punishment waiting for them. So the idea is it's not really a favor. But we have to understand these ayat in their context. Allah Azza wa did give the Israelites a favor. It wasn't a trap. It wasn't, I'm going to give you more prophets so I can curse you more. Oh, I'm going to give you more miracles so I can curse you more. That wasn't it. He gave them more and more and more so they can keep coming back to Allah. And they disregarded it. So it wasn't an entrapment from Allah. But on the flip side, that does exist. There are nations who disobey Allah openly and disregard Allah. And Allah does the same thing for them. He gives them more. He gives them more. You know? وَإِذَا أَرَدْنَا أَن نُهْلِكَ قَرْيَةً أَمَرْنَا مُتْرَ فِيهَا فَفَسَقُوا فِيهَا فَحَقَّ عَلَيْهَا الْقَوْلِ فَدَمَّرْنَاهَا تَدْمِيرًا In Surah Al-Isra. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, when we decide to destroy a people, then we give power to the corrupt and the most elite people in them. They become powerful, and they do all kinds of corruption in those nations. Then finally we destroy them. So this is something we have to be warned about. Don't be simplistic as a Muslim. Don't be simplistic in your thinking about how Allah judges people. Sometimes Allah gives you good in this world, and it's actually good for you. And sometimes Allah gives you good in this world, but it's a, it's a curse for you. So you can't just say, I have a lot of wealth, that must mean Allah loves me. Or I don't have wealth and power, that means Allah hates me. It is not that simple an equation, not in the Qur'an, not in this religion. There are some people who enjoyed a lot of power in life, and they were cursed, like Fir'aun. There are some people who had nothing in this life, and they're the most noble of people, like Ibrahim salam, homeless. Right? So this is not one formula in this world. Who is on the side of Allah, or who is on this, on, in the favor from Allah, and who is not. Our deen, that's why it's very clear, it understands that in this life, we're just going to be tested. And it's going to be tested with good things, and tested with bad things. To see what, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to behave? These things that you're given in life, are not success, and they're not failure. They're just a test. Like you graduating is not a success to Allah. It's simply a test. What are you going to do with that graduation? You getting a good job is not a success, it's actually a test. What are you gonna, are you gonna be grateful? Are you gonna do good as a result of having income? You know? All the things that you think of in terms of success, they're not actually success. This, by the way, sets us worlds apart from the Christian people of today and the Jewish people of today. To them, God is happy with you when He gives you. And God is angry with you if He doesn't give you. I, I actually, um, I really wanted to understand the, 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 the mindset of the, a large contingent of the Christian people, especially the denominations of Christianity that are in this area, in the South, and especially in Texas. So I actually went to a Joel Olstein program. I just wanted to hear the guy speak myself and kind of understand what is it that they preach. Because they filled American Airlines Stadium. It was like a playoff game. I mean, it was packed, right? And I just want to listen to this guy. I want to understand what is it that they're trying to say. And basically, the entire three hours, you know what it was? It was, there are, here's a summary. You're already saved because Jesus, you believe in Jesus, so you don't have to worry about heaven because that's already guaranteed. Those tickets have already been booked. 
So you have no problems left in the akhirah. What are the only problems you have left then? Dunya, this is it. So here you go, if you just have faith, this is the year where your cancer is going to disappear. This is the year where you're going to get that promotion. This is the year where Jesus is going to get you married again. You know, that's all it was. You're this, these next 12 months from this Christmas to next Christmas, man, Jesus is going to take care of everything for you. Not one mention of anything of the akhirah. Nothing. Why? Because to them, the love of Allah means what? He'll make dunya better. He'll, that's the service. Everybody's like, yeah, mm, 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 yes, yes, promotion. You know? <laughs> you know? But you know what's sick? is that Muslims have fallen into that trap. When they have a hard time, why is Allah angry at me? When they have an easier time, ah, alhamdulillah, finally Allah is happy with me. Uh, that's, not, that's not an indication that Allah is happy with you. That is not. That is, that is not our mindset at all. So, عَبِيدُ النِّعَمْ كَثِيرُونَ وَعَبِيدُ الْمُنْعِمْ قَلِيلُونَ What a beautiful statement in response to this ayah. Mention my favor that I did upon you. Imam Razi says, People that are enslaved to the favors themselves are many. But people who enslave themselves to the giver of those favors are very few. People are obsessed with the favors themselves. They're not obsessed with the one who gives them. And Allah calls us back to Him. And that's why by contrast, what are they told? Udhkuru ni'mati. Mention my favor. Think at least about the favor. When our turn comes in the same surah, it says, فَذْكُرُوا أَذْكُرْكُمْ Mention me, I'll remember you. He doesn't say to this ummah, Udhkuru ni'mati. He'll say that later. But in this surah, he contrasted us with them and says, no, you're the people who will remember me directly. Now, I want to just share with you that, that this is actually an echo for the Jewish people when they heard this ayah. It was so close to home. The last time they heard something like this was actually from the tongue of Musa salam himself recorded in their books. Musa When Musa salam said to his people, Ya qawm, udhkuru ni'mat Allahi alaykum. My people, make mention of Allah's favor upon you. إِذْ جَعَلَ فِيكُمْ وَجَعَلَ فِيكُمْ مُلُوكَ When He installed among you, in your midst, He put so many prophets, and He put so many kings among you. وَآتَاكُمْ مَا لَمْ يُؤْتِي أَحَدًا مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ And He gave you what He's never given other people, no other people before. By the way, Musa salam was saying that, and they weren't even kings yet. And there weren't even many prophets yet. That actually, most of that happens after He's gone. So he's actually saying, make, the favor, make mention of Allah's favor that He's promised you these things that are coming. Now the Qur'an is actually looking back at that promise and saying, look, I fulfilled it. I've, Musa was promising you, you're going to have lots of prophets and you're going to have kings. Kings like who? Like Dawud alayhi salam, like Sulaiman alayhi salam. Their khilafah spread all over the world. Their rule spread all over the world. The Israelite empire was massive, absolutely massive. And he gave, he'll, he gave you what he hasn't given anybody else in the meaning he guaranteed you what he hasn't guaranteed anybody else. But by the time the final revelation of Qur'an came, it is like Allah is looking back at that entire Jewish history and saying, remember that promise of Musa to you? Didn't I fulfill it to you? And so I did my promise. Even Imam Razi asked the question, so, but this is a favor to their ancestors, not to them. Why are the Jews of Medina listening to this? And Imam Razi says, had it not been these favors on their ancestors, they would have died in the desert. There would be no, there would be no offspring. There would be no future lineage. So, فَصَارَتِ النِّعَمْ عَلَى الْأَبَاءَ كَأَنَّهَا نِعَمٌ عَلَى الْأَبْنَاءِ 
That's why the favors done to your ancestors are actually favors done to you. Because without that, you wouldn't be around. Uh, then he says, لِأَوْلَادِ لِأَوْلَادٍ مَتَى سَمِعُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ خَصَّ أَبَاءَهُمْ بِهَذِهِ النِّعَمْ رَغِبَ الْوَلَدُ فِي هَذِهِ الطَّرِيقَةِ لِأَنَّ الْوَلَدُ مَجْبُولٌ عَلَى التَّشْبِيهِ بِالْأَبْ فِي أَفْعَالِ الْخَيْرِ فَيَصِيرُ هَذَا التَّذْكِيرِ دَاعِيًا إِلَى الْإِشْتِغَالِ بِالْخَيْرَاتِ وَالْإِعْرَادِ عَنِ الشُّرُورِ Beautiful words. He says when a father is called upon, like I was telling you in the beginning, and by in the name of the father you're told make mention of the favors that have been done to you it is as though we are pre like we're programmed something in us says we want to be like our father we want to be like our parents or like our ancestors so there that sense of identity is being invoked in them that they should be competing in doing good things wa awfu bi ahdi and fulfill and completely fulfill do your part in the promise that i have made ahdi is interesting because the word ahd promise um, has two meanings the word ahad in, for the Arabs of that time, it meant promise. But ahad was actually one of the names of the Torah also. Actually to this day they say al-ahd al-qadim. For the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, they call it al-ahd al-qadim. So Allah's use of the word ahad here, awfu bi-ahdi, fulfill my, basically in a sense, fulfill my Bible. Even my Bible, the one I gave you, says what I want you to do. It's not different from what I've given this messenger wasallam. Actually believing in this messenger is you fulfilling what was given to you. So the word ahad has this, what's called izdiwajud dalalaid. It has dual meaning. The promise and the Old, Test- the Old Testament or you know, the Hebrew Bible. Ufi bi'ahdikum, I'll fulfill my promise with you. What is this promise? There's some indications in the Qur'an, Allah refers to this promise that He made with them. I, I told you about this before, but I want to make some references so you, it's clear in your mind, what is Allah referring to? وَلَقَدْ أَخَذَ اللَّهُ مِثَاقَ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ وَبَعَثْنَا مِنْهُ مُثْنَيْ عَشَرَ نَقِيبًا Allah took a, co- a contract, you can say a contract, covenant is hard for you guys to understand. So we'll call it a contract. Allah took a contract from the children of Israel, and, and, and we broke them up and we appointed among them 12 tribe leaders, Naqiba, 12 tribal leaders or family leaders. Why are there 12? Because there were 12 sons of Israel, right? So there's, there's 12 tribes now, 12 families become 12 tribes. وَقَالَ اللَّهِ And Allah said, إِنِّي مَعَكُمْ I am no doubt with you. لَإِنْ أَقَمْتُمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتَيْتُمُ الزَّكَاةَ If you were to establish the prayer and give the zakat, وَآمَنْتُمْ بِرُسُولِي and if you were to believe in all of my messengers, وَعَزَّرْتُمُوهُمْ And if you were to honor them, as much as you can possibly honor them, وَأَقْرَضْتُمُ اللَّهَ قَرْضًا حَسَنًا And if you were to give Allah a good loan, which means you're going to make sacrifices for the sake of Allah and sacrifice your well-being in this world for a better life in the next world, if you're willing to compromise what you get here for what you will get in the akhirah, لَأُكَفِّرَنَّ عَنْكُمْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ In that case, I will absolutely, absolutely bury far away from you all of the evil deeds that you've done. وَلَأُدْخِلَنَّكُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ And I will absolutely enter you into gardens at the bottoms of which rivers are going to flow. فَمَنْ كَفَرَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ مِنْكُمْ Then whoever would deny after all of that from among you, then he's gone far away from the middle of the path. He's gone way far off. Look at this promise that Allah made to them. I'll forgive your sins and I'll enter you into Jannah. Notice that their beliefs became they're already forgiven because they're chosen and special. Allah already loves them too much, so it's all good. And on top of that, forget about Jannah. They even removed all concept of Akhirah. And that was the original promise. وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ 
Allah Azza wa Jalla says, and my my loving care has overcome and has expanded to all things. So I will document it. I will make, I will guarantee it for those people who try to protect themselves. And they give the obligatory charity. And those who believe in all of our miracles. Listen to this carefully. Those who follow the Prophet who cannot read. Those who follow the Prophet. Al-Ummi. The one who is as unlettered as he was when he came out of his mother. The one that they find written about in their, in their documentation, in the Torah and in the Injil. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament and in the Gospel. They find it there. It is, he is documented therein. And so our scholars actually became very curious, where is this documentation? You know, and this became a discussion among the Muslims. Where is he talked about? And some of them made reference to it in their books. Imam Razi talked about at least one passage, even though he's quoted several, but in the book of Isaiah, he actually pulled out the Hebrew Bible, or the Arabic Bible, and quoted the whole passage in his tafsir. I won't read the Arabic passage to you. I'll, give, I'll share some things of the, the English translation of it, uh, inshallah ta'ala, with you when the time comes. But then, وَإِيَّا farhabun. He says to the Israelites, fulfill my promise, I'll fulfill my end of the deal with you, and you should be, now the word is farhabun, you should be terrified only and only of me. Now the word rahab in Arabic, I'll give you some meanings of it. Uh, rahab is al-khawf al-mustamir, that's the first meaning, continuous fear. Khawf in Arabic means fear. But khawf can come and khawf can go. But rahab is actually something that will keep you up at night, and it will constantly scare you. Okay. So like, for example, politicians that want to suppress people, they don't want to instill khawf. What do they want to do? Rahab. They do istirhab. Istirhab meaning people are constantly worried, security state, you know, security alert, code red, all the time. They're nervous all the time, right? This is istirhab. But rahab has another meaning. Very interesting is arrahib al-muta'abbidu fi sawma'a. Is actually someone out of fear of God, and out of worry that they're not doing enough for God, people who cut themselves off and just do worship all the time. They just worship all the time. Like you know how people, monks in the monastery, like Christian monks in monasteries in the Catholic faith, or people who dedicate themselves to the church, and they don't get married, and they, don't, like, they dress in black all the time. And you know, We had some, some of those elements in the Muslim society where people would only dress in uncomfortable wool. You know, and just do dhikr because they don't want to have any ladha, any good taste of this life because they only want to remember Allah, that kind of thing. This is rahbaniyah, it's called rahbaniyah. Okay? Out of fear of losing sight of God and out of fear of making God angry, you're so engrossed in worship. And this is something the Prophet spoke out against. This kind of extreme is something he spoke out against. Even the Quran says, وَرَحْبَانِيَّةً ibtadauha مَا كَتَبْنَاهَا عَلَيْهِمْ إِلَّا that this monasticism, this kind of excessive spirituality, where you deny your needs in this world, this is something they made up. They made it up. We never made them do it. We never documented it or mandated it over them. But they only did so out of pursuit of making Allah happy. They weren't able to live up to it like they, the standards they themselves set. You guys know the kinds of scandals that come out of the Catholic Church. You, human nature is human nature. Human beings, Allah created him and her with certain desires, certain wants. 
He, that's part of our nature. He put us in this earth and He put certain needs in us. To pretend that those needs don't exist and we're just going to turn into angels is impossible. And that's why the Rasul of Allah وسلم, spoke out against this kind of thing also. When he saw companions pray, praying all night, every night. Or when he saw them fasting every single day. He said, wait, I fast and I, don't, I eat also. I pray and I sleep also. Like he, he, he preached a balance. You know what happens when you go overboard? Uh, you know if you, if you for example only drive your car at full speed, you only accept the, and every time you press the brake, you press it all the way, <laughs> every time, what's going to happen to your car? It's going to go bust. No, no machinery, nothing in nature can operate only on extremes. It, it burns out. What happens to people? When they go overboard, they burn out. There are people that were so obsessive in their religion, they got to a point where they just don't even want to do anything with Islam anymore. And these were the most extreme in the religion. I've met people like that that have become atheists. They don't even believe anymore. The question though is, why is Allah telling the Israelites, I shared all of this with you for this ayah, why is Allah telling the Israelites, you need to have rahab of me, and only me. Wa farhabun. Have a continuous, excessive fear of me, and also means, have an overwhelming amount of spirituality and otherworldliness, lose interest in the world, and come towards me like you've never come before. Actually, Rahab includes excessiveness. It's only used for someone who goes overboard in something. Allah is telling them, now you need to go overboard in spirituality. That's what He's telling them. You know how you say in, to every action, there's an equal but opposite? Reaction, for centuries, they let go of the belief in the Akhirah. And when they let go of the belief in the Akhirah, they let go of their fear of Allah. For centuries upon centuries upon centuries, they, the concept of having any fear of Allah was removed from their minds. And so, the only way for them to normalize now, is to actually tell them, you need to go out of your way and detox, and have an excessive fear of Allah. Because you guys have just completely lost all notion of the fear of Allah, entirely. So they're being brought back to balance by an extreme detox program. This is actually kind of like a scared straight program in the Qur'an, specifically meant for the Israelite people. You don't find this kind of language generally in the Qur'an. You find taqwa, you find khawf, you don't find rahab like that. You don't find rahab like that. You will find it in particular cases only and in pretty much every one of those cases, one way or the other, it's pointing at the Israelites. So Allah Azza wa says, وَإِيَّا farhabun." On this note, another important cautionary item that helps you understand who we are as Muslims. Allah in this Qur'an, in, this, in, in His guidance, He basically, I want you to think of it this way, He appealed to the senses of the human being, the fitrah of the human being. And the human being is basically made up of two very powerful faculties. We have a heart and we have a mind. Our heart is a place of our emotions. Our love is in our hearts, our hate is in our hearts, our anger is in our hearts, our jealousy is in our hearts, our greed, our desires, our, des- you know, our appreciation of beauty, our gratitude. All of these emotions lie where? In the heart. But then Allah also gave us a very powerful mind. And our mind is where understanding rests. Ilm, knowledge rests there, you know, a, a pondering, reflection, you know, deep, deeper and deeper learning. These are matters of the heart, remembering things. These are matters of the mind. So we're two things. We're, we're mind and we are heart. 
Now what happened with the Jewish people was, the things that would bring their heart, make their hearts soft, the reminders of Allah, the reminder of the Akhirah, after all, you'll even hear now in Taraweeh, when the Imam, the reciter, goes through ayat of the Akhirah, or standing in front of Allah, or meeting with Allah, or being rewarded by Allah, or being questioned by Allah, it moves us to tears. It softens the heart. Imagine if none of the Akhirah, or none of the rewards, or none of the conversation about meeting with Allah is there. Then the heart will start becoming hard. And the only thing left in the religion will be legal issues, fiqh discussions, fatawa, that's all you're gonna discuss. And by the way, those of you that are students of the subject of fiqh, which is a great subject, it's not a spiritual subject. If you're discussing the disagreements among the jurists about the, you know, whether or not you can have socks when you make wudu, or how high your pants need to be, or how long, what's the length of the beard, or what is the evidence for nail polish, or not nail polish, or whatever else. And you have a five-hour discussion on these issues, it's not gonna be like, oh my God, I'm so much closer to Allah. It's not gonna happen. Legal discourse is all, all up here. It's all academic. Let me look at this evidence. Let me refute this evidence. Let me go by this fatwa. Let me go by that fatwa. It's actually an academic intellectual exercise, yes? The Jewish people became obsessed with this exercise. This tradition of law on top of law, on top of law and legal discourse. They became a people whose religion became a matter only of the mind. And so much so that Allah says their hearts became hard. Then finally Allah sent them, you know, first Dawood salam to reform the Zabur, which is basically only praise of Allah, that's all it is. And then finally He sent them Injil. And if you look at Injil and the people who believe in Isa salam, is, is their religion, does their religion seem to be obsessed with the mind or the heart? Oh man, it's, it's the heart. I mean, you can't go to Sunday and not cry. You know, it's, it's just getting to your heart. That's, that's what it is. And some of, the, some of the practices of the Christian people are beautiful practices, man. I'm not going to diss them for, for what they do. We, we could use some of what they have because they follow some of the sunnah of the prophets that we don't even follow anymore. You know, Like you'll go to a church and the preacher won't just give you a three-hour sermon. He'll just say, hey, so who of you has a, has a problem? Tell us about it. And somebody got to, hey, my, my name's Frank. I just lost my job. Been pretty hard. And everybody's like, and the preacher's like, everybody, let's pray for Frank. And everybody prays for Frank. And somebody comes up to him and says, hey, man, what, what do you used to do? I have a job opening in my company. And that happens. And somebody else, ah, I just got divorced. Oh, everybody pray for him. You know, and they'd like literally go by and everybody's just talking about what they're going through and they're patting each other and they're, they're supportive of each other. Because it's a matter of what? The heart. You don't even have to be Muslim. You sit there and like, wow, that, that felt nice. When we walk into a masjid, we just look at each other. <laughs> Funny, usually. And people check out where my pants are. Is it Isbal or not? Or, you know, is that even a hijab? You call that a hijab? You know, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> I don't really care about people or their problems, or say, let's just make dua, you know, for them, that kind of thing. Which, by the way, reminds me, I was asked to make dua for three people, by extension for anybody who's sick. There's a young man in Michigan, uh, very active in his community, does a lot of Islamic work, who just had brain surgery. His mother asked for dua for him, to make dua for him. And additionally, one of our employees, uh, his mother-in-law and his grandmother are, are both very, very sick. May Allah Azza give them complete recovery and make it a, a means of forgiveness for them. And by extension, all of, the Mus- uh, all of the people, all the Muslims that are suffering in any way, that are going through sickness, difficulty, financial, physical, or they're in difficult you know, uh, lands where there's trouble, 
and there, there's a risk is hard to come by, safety is hard to come by. May Allah Azzawajal's ease the situation and the trials of the Muslims everywhere. Okay? So in any case, وَآمِنُوا بِمَا أَنزَلْتُ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا مَعَكُمْ And believe in what I have sent down as a constant confirmation. I will call this a constant confirmation for Arabic students. If you say مُصَدِّقًا, you can replace it with يُصَدِّقُ مُضَارِعًا That would be a hal also, it would be an adverb also. It would be read, وَآمِنُوا بِمَا أَنزَلْتُ يُصَدِّقُ لِمَا مَعَكُمْ But Allah says, مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا مَعَكُمْ what that means is that believe in what I have sent down, that is always going to conser- confirm what is with you. In other words, people of the book, Jews and Christians, genuine Jews and Christians, until the Day of Judgment, when they come to listen to the Qur'an with an open heart, it will confirm what they had in their hearts all along. It's not just a matter of the time of Medina. It's not just a matter of that century. It's going to happen in Australia. It's going to happen in Indonesia. It's going to happen in America. Anywhere the Jews and Christians will come, and they will genuinely listen to the message of the Qur'an, something in their heart will shake. I have a good friend from Maryland who's an imam, who became an imam in Colorado, and when he went there, uh, he was invited to, he invited a church group to the masjid. And all he did was recite Surat Maryam. He just recited, in Arabic, he recited Surat Maryam. And already people were crying. The church group, already people were crying. And then all he did was read a simple, simple translation of what he recited. And the, almost the entire congregation, not only are they in tears, they're begging, can we come back next week? Can we come back next week? Can we come back? SubhanAllah. You would imagine they were going to argue, they were going to debate, they were going to, no, Jesus this, marry that. No, no, no. We just want to hear. Inna kunna min qablihi muslimin. Quran says, we were already kind of Muslim before this. It was already there. SubhanAllah. That's, it's, it's a powerful thing to, to internalize that this book is going to be confirming what they have. Lima ma'akum. That's why he doesn't say, Musaddiqan li kitabikum. It's a confirmation of your book. No, no, no. If whatever you have, meaning your book, what you have in your conscience, your thoughts, your fitra, you have more than just your book. And this book will resonate with your entire being. And then you notice there's a lamb there. The word musaddiqan or musaddiqan uh, does not need a lamb. It could actually be musaddiqan ma ma'akum. You don't need a lamb there. The lamb is actually za'ida. Grammatically, it's considered an addition. What is the purpose of that addition? To say it will confirm a part of what is with you. It will not confirm the entire Bible or the entire you know, New Testament or the Gospel because there are so many changes that have been made. It will confirm the parts that still resonate with the truth. There's still fihudan wa nur. Quran says in it there's still guidance and there's still light and those parts will just pop out when you when you look at the Quran. Now I want to read to you, actually not the Arabic, I'll read the, the English to you. Imam Razi, so cool, he um, read the Bible because he wanted to find what is this talking about. Like you have something in your books? I want to know. So he has access to the Arabic Bible, he starts reading through it, and he highlights a number of things, right? And here's one of the things he highlights. This in, modern, in the modern uh, translation of the Bible is described as the glory of Zion. Okay, so it's the glory of Zion or Israel or whatever. But if you read this description carefully, you'll notice elements in it that just, it's so clear it's talking about Makkah. It's so, it's so wild that it's talking about Makkah. Arise, I'll read this off to you in, in the English. Arise, shine, for your light has come, 
and the glory of the, of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. You is the land itself. God is talking to the land. Okay? Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Have you ever seen the image of somebody, like an old woman, being carried to Hajj by her son? Right? Unless, and by the way, the Jewish people believe that the land of Zion, is, or this land, is meant for the Jewish people. It's not meant for the Africans. It's not meant for the Chinese. It's not meant... What is, the, what is their own book saying? I'll read that part again. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. I could keep going. I mean, I think you get the point. Allah Azza wa Jal describing what's left of their book. A land that will be filled with people that want to worship and glorify and declare God and praise Him. And what I found interesting in the Arabic Bible, I'll just read one part of it at the end. He says, وَيُرْفَعُ إِلَى مَذْبَحِي مَا يُرْضِينِي وَأُحَدِّثُ حِينَئِذٍ لِبَيْتِ مَحْمَدَةِ حَمْدًا He says, that people will be elevated to a place where sacrifice is supposed to be done for me. All people will come to perform sacrifice. Do people go from all over the world to, to Jerusalem to perform sacrifices? Where do they go to this day from all over the world to perform a sacrifice? And I will come to a place with libayti mahmadati, hamdan. And then at that time I will speak to a people who come there to praise me. What do we say when we go to Hajj? لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ إِنَّ الْحَمْدَ وَالنِّعْمَةَ لَكَ وَالْمُلْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ We make the hamd of Allah, the biblical account still says they'll come to do hamd of me. To my house, they will come to do hamd of me. And then it says that he keeps describing himself as the king. And we say, لَكَ وَالْمُلْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ There is no bigger demonstration of this passage that even as it survived today, than the hajj every year. It's amazing. So and I'm, like Muslims noticed this centuries ago, man. They're like, Imam Razi wrote about this like centuries ago. He's just like, by the way, this is what I noticed in the Bible. He's not even like doing the Zakir Naik or nothing. He's just like, just quoting it like casually, subhanAllah. And they've turned this into the glory of Zion. It doesn't even fit the history of Zion. It doesn't even fit. And if you were to try to force it to fit, it wouldn't even fulfill the prophecy that's mentioned therein. You know? وَلَا تَكُونُوا أَوَّلَ كَافِرٍ بِهِ Don't be the first to dis- disbelieve and be ungrateful to it. وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا This is what I wanted to emphasize before I let you guys go today. وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا وَإِيَّا يَفَتَّقُونَ It is translated, don't sell my miracles for a small gain. Don't sell my miracles for a small gain. And be fearful and cautious only and only of me. I want you to first understand the selling business or buying business. اِشْتَرَيْتُهُ بِدَرَاهِمْ يعني اشتريت الكتاب بدراهم. What that means is I bought the book for a few bucks. Okay? When you put the ba, whatever comes after the ba is the currency. Whatever you put after the ba is the currency. Listen, ولا تشتروا ب 
ayati thamanan qalila. What is the currency in the ayah? The ayat are the currency. Ayat are actually wealth that is used to gain worldly things. Ayat is being described as money that you use, that you gather, like people gather money, these people gather ayat, and they, use, they basically give the ayat up to purchase things, to get things for themselves. This is the crime committed with a book. Now what in the world does that mean? This is not understood by the vast majority of Muslims today, unfortunately. It is not understood. I want to break, first of all, our broken, uh, crush our broken understanding first. Rasulullah saw certain companions were extra brilliant, charismatic, great personality, people gravitate towards them, and he saw that these people can be ambassadors of Islam. One such young man was Mus'ab ibn Umayr. Came from a wealthy family, good-looking young man, charismatic, charming. He saw that Mus'ab ibn Umayr, and he's a great student of the Qur'an. So not only should Mus'ab ibn Umayr be an ambassador, he should actually go to Medina and start preaching Islam even before the Prophet goes there. Now Mus'ab ibn Umayr, if you don't know his story, he was kicked out of his family, there was nothing left with him. He, her, his mother even asked him to not even take the clothes that he, he had on. That's what she did with him. So he's completely broke, absolutely homeless. And now Rasulullah says, you need to go make da'wah where? In Medina. And you go, go teach Qur'an there. So what Rasulullah did is, he actually set up a salary, a stipend for Mus'ab ibn Umayr, so he can cover his expenses while he does this. He used to be on a full-time salary to teach the Qur'an in Medina. Now there are some people who say, when some, like an imam, teaches children, he teaches, there's a fee, and he teaches at a, at a weekend school, or he comes to people's homes and he teaches them to recite Qur'an, right? Or there's a university that has a fee that has a bachelor's degree in Qur'an studies, or in sharia, or whatever. Some people look at that and say, Islam should be free, man. Don't you read the, the Qur'an? It says, لَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِي ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا You're selling the ayat of Allah. That's what Allah talks about. Oh yeah, first of all. Clearly, the free education was not a good enough education for you because <laughs> you don't even know what this is saying. What did they use the ayat for? Currency. What does it mean? It actually means that they would give up the teachings of the ayat and they would give a fatwa, or make a tafsir, make an explanation, or give a ruling, give a verdict, even if it went against the ayat, just so they can get a little bit of more popularity, or get people to appreciate them, or a ruler comes and says, listen, um, I know there's this whole, you, you're, you're going to do a dars of Torah every week, but there's this passage coming in which the, the Torah criticizes corrupt governors. I don't really like that passage. Could you skip that dars this Saturday and just start from ayah number 85 instead of going from 75 to 84? Just skip that part and go to the next chapter. And the, the rabbi would say, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I can do that. Uh, you know, for the greater good. And if he would do that and keep, sharing, keep from sharing with the people what would otherwise be a source of justice would highlight a crime that's being committed in society. Would actually say something that's politically incorrect. People don't want to hear it, but it has to be said because it's in Allah's book. They would actually give some of the ayat up. Because you know when you, when you have money to get something, what do you have to do? You have to give it up. You can't have it anymore. So they would give up the ayat, and they would get some small 
gain. The, ayat, the, the point in the ayat is to compromise the teachings of Allah. To compromise the teachings of Allah. And on that note, we have to have a very intelligent conversation, guys. I, I, this is the two-minute version of it. In the history of Islam, we had an institution called Waqf. Waqf was, there's a giant masjid that's going to be built. Obviously, if it's a giant masjid, then the cleanup costs money. The air conditioning is going to cost money nowadays. The carpet fixing is going to cost money. The wudu area is going to need res- renovation. It costs money. And you can't keep asking people to donate over and over and over again because they may, not, may or may not be in a financially well-off situation. We cannot allow our masajid to fall apart. So the institution of waqf was, let's not just make a masjid. Let's put a giant marketplace next to the masjid and revenues from the market will go into the masjid. We'll, we'll charge rent or whatever it is, and there's this business thing running, and it, it, it's going to keep on making money, and through that money, this other institution will get afforded. So they don't have to beg for money from the people. It will solve some other problems too. What will it solve? First of all, Islamic institutions become financially independent, yes? If you have waqf, Islamic institutions become financially independent. Financial independence is absolutely necessary for religious institutions. Why? Because if a religious institution is not financially independent, then whoever writes the biggest check has the biggest influence. Right? And then they can come along and say, well, I'm the one who paid for half this building, or I'm the one who did this, this, this. I I want you to do this kind of program next year, and I don't want you to invite that scholar anymore, and I want you to do this. And now they're dictating how things should run. Because once money comes into play, so does corruption, right? There's a dependency. And then the imam can be told, hey, listen, um, I like you, but never ever talk about riba again. Don't do it, okay? But just talk about like masah over socks. That's a good subject for you. Uh, you, can, you can also talk about you know, how uh, you know, women shouldn't be wearing high heels or whatever. You could do that. Uh, but just stay away from riba. I, I don't want you talking about that subject, if you want your, your job here. If you have religious leaders, religious institutions, that are financially held hostage, then they can't openly speak or teach. There's always going to be some external force you know, coming onto them. So the, the institution used to be what? Waqf. Now the problem is, in the modern world, the institution of waqf is nearly dead. Right? And there, we were trying to revive it in some way, ways or another. But we are in a, a, a strange situation all over the world. As a matter of fact, in some cases, unprecedented situations. You know, the people in, for example, people who come from Saudi or Qatar, you know, or Dubai or whatever, they never imagined that we're going to raise money to make a masjid. The awqaf takes care of it, they build a masjid. It's done. Or we're going to come up with money to pay the salary of an imam. No, there's a guy full-time whose only job is to give the adhan. That's his full-time job, dude. Homeboy comes out, makes an epic adhan, goes back in, and that's his full-time job. And they're, they're set, you know? We don't have those luxuries in America or Australia or England or the minority Muslim community in like Sri Lanka or wherever. When we're going to build, we have to build how? Ourselves. Ourselves. And we have to come up with financial vehicles to figure out how we're going to make this thing work. How are we going to make our massages work? We're still figuring it out. We're not doing a great job, unfortunately, yet. Right? Because, I mean, every, every other month we have fundraisers for the... We don't have water in the wudu area anymore, so please help us out. There are some people, still people that can't make salah right now. So until you give us a check, we can turn the water back on. You know, we have those kinds of situations. 
that just means we haven't figured out a good, clean financial model. But to pretend that the work of this deen at an institutional level does not require financial support is silly. It always did. It always required financial support. And it's something that will always require financial support. And the biggest cost will actually always be human resources. People. Because if you want the work of deen to go forward, buildings don't do the work of deen. Buildings don't. Computers don't do the work of deen. People do the work. And people have to give up other work to do this work. They have to give up other things. And so supporting institutions in a way, my, my personal philosophy, this is not the time for it, but my personal philosophy is institutions need to be created that first of all are transparent. Second of all, they may need help in getting off the ground. But once they're off the ground, they have a very good business plan so they can keep running like the Al-Qaf used to run. Al-Qaf didn't start for free. Somebody had to pitch in to get it started. But once it got started, it was running on its own and it wasn't dependent anymore. So plans need to be in place so our institutions can run independently. And my sincere dua is that all the Muslim institutions figure this thing out. For, you know, for, and that, that we're able to become you know, uh, independent, integrity-carrying uh, vehicles. Anyway, I got one more thing for you to, to listen to. Very beautiful. Pay attention to this. The Qur'an says, ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا Multiple times. Small price. Small price. Little price. Little price. One time in Surah Yusuf, Allah says, ثَمَنٍ بَخْسٍ Cheap price. Undervalued price. How come Allah doesn't say bakhs? Bakhs means undervalued, meaning something was worth 100 and you only paid 80, that's thaman, bakhs. Qalil means less than it was worth. Bakhs means the opposite is that you could have paid 100. When it comes to selling the ayat of Allah, giving up the guidance of Allah, no matter what you get in return, it's always going to be qalil. It's, it can't be, because if you say bakhs, it means it's an unfair price, which brings to mind the idea that there is such a thing as a fair price too. There is no fair price to give up the ayat of Allah. Anything you gain when you give up the guidance of Allah is going to be thamanan qalila. So the wording here suggests that the guidance of Allah is absolutely priceless. There is no gain from any ruler, from any billionaire, from anyone that can ever come your way that will be worth giving up the guidance of Allah and not being true to the text. May Allah Azza wa make us people of taqwa, of only and only Allah, and in doing so, that may, may He not make us of those who shortchange the word of Allah in any way, shape, or form. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ani wa iyyakum bil ayat wa dhikr al-Hakim.